We are so very excited to hear from these amazing creators and all of the great books that we're going to talk about today. Our webinar is being recorded and we will send out the link in the follow-up email. We'll also be sending a list of all the books that are discussed here today. So don't worry about trying to frantically write down all the great titles. Um, we do have auto-generated closed captioning enabled. If you would prefer not to see the closed captioning, you can click the button called Live Transcript to turn that off. If you have questions for our panelists, please use the Q&A button below. We have a staff member keeping an eye on that and we'll try to get to the questions at the end of the webinar. If we don't get to your particular question, we'll try to answer it by email afterwards. If you have any book recommendations about hidden history that you'd like to share with the entire group, please feel free to use the chat to do so. Again, we'll collect the details both from our panelists, the registrations, as well as the chat and put that into a big book list spreadsheet that we can send out um, after the fact. Please note that abuse of any kind will not be tolerated and anyone violating this policy will be summarily banned from the webinar. I'm sure we don't have to worry about that with this group here. If you're live tweeting along, we'll be using the hashtag, hashtag hidden history books. So please feel free to join the conversation on Twitter as well as here in the chat. And uh, with that said, we'll jump into our discussion. First, I'll introduce our guests. Thank you uh, to all of you for participating and to their publishers for creating such fantastic books. Polly Yu is a book author, screenwriter, and musician. Her latest YA nonfiction book, From a Whisper to a Rallying Cry, The Killing of Vincent Chin, and the Trial that Galvanized the Asian American Movement from Norton Young Readers is a Junior Library Guild gold standard selection and has received five-star reviews. Lee Wind is the founding blogger and publisher of I'm Here, I'm Queer, What the Hell Do I Read? An award-winning website about books, culture, and empowerment for lesbian, gay, bi, trans, questioning, and queer youth and their allies. He is the author of No Way They Were Gay, Hidden Lives and Secret Loves, a Junior Library Guild gold standard selection. Lee also works for IDPA and SCBWI. Don Tate is an award-winning author and the illustrator of numerous critically acclaimed books for children. He is one of the founding hosts of the blog, The Brown Bookshelf, a blog designed to push awareness of the myriad of African-American voices writing for young readers with book reviews, author and illustrator interviews. Don frequently speaks at schools, public libraries and writing conferences. Natasha Donovan is the illustrator of the award-winning Mothers of Zan series, written by Brett Hewson. She also illustrated the graphic novel Surviving the City, written by Tasha Spillett, which won the Manitoba Book Award and received an American Indian Youth Literature Award honor. Natasha is Métis and spent her early life in Vancouver, British Columbia. Although she moved to the United States to marry a mathematician, she prefers to keep her own calculations to the world of color and line. Annette Bay Pimentel writes nonfiction books for kids about the people and ideas that have shaped our world. Annette's picture book biography, All the Way to the Top, How One Girl's Fight for Americans with Disabilities Changed Everything, written in cooperation with Jennifer Keelan Chaffins, won a Schneider Family Book Honor from the American Library Association, and both it and Girl Running were Junior Library Guild selections. Thank you all so much for being here today. Our first question, how do you find hidden stories or hidden aspects of familiar stories in history to share with young readers? Lee, let's start with you. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Um, so yeah, when I was in school, history was really presented as medicine. Like it was names and dates to memorize and it never included anybody like me, a boy who like liked other boys at, and was deeply closeted. And I just felt like it was, um, it, it, it excluded me. And then in my 20s, I went to a talk uh, that was about the letters Abraham Lincoln wrote Joshua Fry Speed. And the speaker was saying that he believed that Abraham was in love with Joshua. And I was completely flabbergasted. And I was like, wait, how is that possible? And then I went to the library and I got the letters and I sort of um, 
started, I, I just had this epiphany, this, this, this goosebump moment where Abraham Lincoln was describing how he felt was exactly how I had felt, um, you know, judging dating girls the right thing, but I didn't feel what I was supposed to feel. And it was so, it was this moment of seeing myself reflected in history, someone like me, uh, a, a guy that like, liked other guys. And it was so uh, powerful that I just started collecting the stories of men who loved men and women who loved women and people who loved without regard to gender and people who lived outside gender boundaries. Um, and then my challenge was like, how do I take all these stories and present it not as medicine, but as chocolate, like really empowering chocolate. So that's what I really tried to do with, with No Way They Were Gay. Paula, how about you? Um, well, growing up, uh, just as Lee said, didn't really see a lot of people who looked like me or, you know, anything that looked like me. And it's funny because when you look at my old, I was at my mom's house a few years ago. And when I looked through the drawings I did when I was five years old, you know, you saw me at first with black hair, you know, and it's obvious I identify as who I am, Korean American. But the more I read, you start to see as you go through my, my sketchbook, pictures of me with blonde hair, you know, and blue eyes. And so that that is something I wanted to bring up as to, that's an actual traumatic result of when you don't see your own story, your own voice in children's literature and in, you know, young adult books and things like that. So uh, like Lee, I'm a little bit self-taught because Asian American Pacific Islander history is not taught in depth. And in fact, right now, uh, Illinois was the first state to, uh, to issue a mandate saying you have to teach Asian American history in depth at high schools. And uh, there's a state senator in New York who's doing that. And one of the, the, beyond just drawing pictures of yourself where you don't look like yourself and you lose your sense of identity, you now have the statistic that came out that said because of the COVID coronavirus pandemic and the rise in anti-Asian uh, racism, one out of four Asian American Pacific Islander teenagers have reported being either physically or verbally harassed and bullied because of the pandemic. And that's why I write these books because I don't want today's kids to have to learn on their own and, you know, go to the tiny Asian bookshelf at, at your bookstore at the library and just figure it out on your own in your twenties. That's ridiculous. And if this stuff is taught in schools today, uh, in more depth, not just a paragraph about the, you know, the uh, Japanese Americans being illegally imprisoned during World War II and things like that. If we can have more than just a chapter or a couple of paragraphs, maybe that statistic would be zero out of four. And just talk very quickly, I accidentally discovered my first book, uh, Sammy Lee, uh, 16 Years and 16 Seconds, which was about the first Asian American man to win a, uh, Korean American man to win a gold medal at the Olympics, even though he was not allowed to swim in his pool because he wasn't white, found it by accident on the internet. And, and, and I remember thinking to myself, how, how come no one's ever written about this? That's not how you should find your stories. You know, you, you shouldn't just find it by accident. And I think that's why we're here to discuss that. And I'll discuss more later about how I found out about Vincent Chin, but I don't want to take up too much more time. So thank you. Don, how do you find your stories to talk about? Uh, you know, I get the question a lot and I, I wish that I had a more profound answer. You know, something like my great, great grandfather was married to the cousin of the brother of William Steele and the diary got passed down through the family until it got to me and I wrote the story. It just simply didn't happen that way for me. Um, the truth is most of the subjects that I've written about were suggested to me by writer colleagues. I wrote my very first book, It Just Happened, when Bill Trailer started to draw. 
when a writer called colleague Diana Aston, um, who's a wonderful author, and she could have written that story herself. She felt like, you know, this is the story of an African American man. This is not my story to tell. And so she shared the story with me. I was inspired by it. And so I wrote the story. Um, the same with my book, Poet, The Remarkable Story of George Moses Horton, was um, a story that was passed along to me by my friend, Chris Barton. Chris Barton had heard the story of a dorm house in North Carolina um, at the University of Chapel Hill, um, who was going to name this dorm house after a man who had once been enslaved and worked there, George Moses Horton. Chris at first was going to write that story, but he felt like that was simply not his story to tell. And I might make for a better author to tell that story. So again, I wrote that story. What I learned is that these hidden stories are actually everywhere, um, but they're hidden for many reasons. Some stories simply weren't recorded. Some stories are fully out there. They're not hidden, but simply haven't reached you know, the right contemporary storyteller to write up that manuscript and bring it to today's readers. But oftentimes these stories have been hidden because tellers of history, they didn't want them to be told. American history isn't always pretty. And just like some of the things that are happening today where politicians and legislators are working hard to erase history they deem undesirable or divisive, some here history gets hidden intentionally. You know, I think about these conversations of critical race theory and these discussions about race and the origins of our country as it relates to the enslavement of African-Americans and state by state by state, these histories are quickly getting legislated. So how do I go about finding these stories? I keep my ears open, I listen, and when I come across a subject, however I come across it, the subject has to speak to me. Sometimes the subject inspires me. Sometimes the subject enrages me. Sometimes it makes me see the world in a whole new way. But it, um, it has to be a subject where I simply cannot let that subject go on being hidden for one more day. Thank you. Annette, how do you find stories to write about? Yeah, so what all the other panelists said really resonates with me, sometimes um, finding it by chance. But I think that the one common denominator, and I suspect it's with all of us because we're all nonfiction writers, is being willing to really dig into the sources. Um, it's lazy writing to just um, to repeat the stories and the assumptions that we come into a project, or at least that I come into a project with, you know, I'll, for example, um, my most recent book is about the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I had certain um, things that I knew about it, like about a Senator who really championed it. I knew like about the big famous players and I could have written it that way. But once I dug into the sources and started um, reading primary sources and trying to follow those links, it leads to other people that aren't the easy and obvious um, stories linked to that topic. So I think that um, the sources are ultimately where the best hidden history comes out. That's a great point. I wanna come back to that in just a moment. Natasha, as an illustrator, 
um, how do you find these stories to to bring to visual life? Um, wonderful authors bring them to me <laughs> is basically my answer. Um, I'm I'm I've just been lucky enough to um, have slowly gotten connected to a community of of authors who are doing all of this work that that everyone else here is is talking about and um uh, it's a it's a privilege to um have the opportunity to to help bring those to life wonderful i i'd like to follow up a little bit on what annette was describing and can you all talk a little bit about how do you research your topic how did you find primary sources how did you decide what to highlight? And um, I'd like to talk about this both from the author's perspective as well as the illustrator's perspective from Natasha and Don. Uh, Paula, would you start us off for that one? Sure, and actually give me two seconds because I have a show and tell, because uh, I realized I should have had this prepared. I'm off to the side just to show you uh, two things I want to talk about with reporting for uh, my book, uh, from a whisper to a rallying cry, the killing of Vincent Chin and the trial that galvanized the Asian American movement. It's a very famous case. It is the first federal civil rights case for an Asian American. He was killed in 1982 um, and his killers got away with three years probation and a $3,000 fine each, which then led to a federal indictment for uh, allegedly um, violating his civil rights. So when I did it, I used to be a journalist, used to write for the Seattle Times, the Detroit News, which is why I knew about the Vincent Chin story, because it happened in Michigan, uh, and People Magazine. And one thing I learned was primary resources, you know, these are, I have like 20 binders of every single court transcript, you know, that I went to the national, I went to all the archives, did all that. I did what is known as, as a former reporter, boots on the ground reporting. I ran, I walked down Woodward Avenue from the nightclub where Vincent Chidden met his killers to where he ran to escape them to the McDonald's down the street. And I walked down that street to see what it was like to take notes and to understand what would it be like to run down that street in the middle of the night in 1982. But then the biggest thing I wanted to say was in terms of primary sources, not only did I interview people you know, at their homes and things like that, but I happened to find a source who turned out to be the son of Vincent Chin's fiance. Vincent Chin's fiance and his family, they didn't go to his wedding. He was killed on the night of his bachelor party. They went to his funeral instead of the wedding. And I happened to find uh, through another source who said, oh, you should interview Jared Liu. He is a family member and when you're in Detroit, you can uh, hire him to be a freelance photographer. He's a you know, up and coming photographer. So I met Jared and he took some pictures that are in my book and I said, Corky Lee, who is a famous uh, Chinese American photographer who sadly died uh, from COVID earlier this year. Uh, he told me uh, that you're also a family member would love to interview you. And Jared looked at me and he said, my mom is Vicky Wong, the fiance. And it was record scratch. Eh! Okay, throwing out everything that I did. I got to start from page one because you are my news, you are my book. And so he became kind of the guide for the teenager, the teenage reader reading this because Vincent Chin's story alone is a fascinating, compelling and amazing story. It, it's like a law and order episode. It's, 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 it's an incredible story, but it took place in the eighties with, you know, there were no cell phones. People actually printed out flyers. Um, you know, uh, th there, were, there was no uh, TikTok or social media back then. And uh, Jared as a millennial, 
kind of is the river guide for the teenagers on this story. And just going back to the theme very quickly, I'll wrap up by saying we're talking about hidden history. One of the most moving things about interviewing Jared was that he didn't know his mom was engaged to be married to Vincent Chin. He found out 30 years later. Uh, this was a family secret. And so the book has two storylines and one is about Jared's journey, gathering the courage to tell his mom, I know you were traumatized. I know that you were triggered by this, but we cannot let people forget who Vincent Chin is. This is, a, this is important for our community. So I uh, just I wanted to give you that anecdote to show you that as you report, these books are living documents. The reporting constantly changes on a dime and what you think is your story may not be your story as long as you keep digging and digging. The, the deeper you go with primary sources, uh, the more blessed you'll be with um, a new direction sometimes. I think I, I hope everybody on Twitter is retweeting that these books are living documents. I think that's that's so interesting and important and, and such a, a strong uh, motivation to get it right, especially. Um, uh, Natasha, can you talk a little bit about how you did your research, particularly for um, classified the secret career of Mary Ross, Cherokee aerospace engineer? How do you how do you portray something visually? <laughs> yeah, um, this was a really interesting one for me because it was um, I've done nonfiction picture books before, uh, but um, particularly for the um, the mothers series, which fo focuses on keystone species. Uh, but that was all based in and continues to be based in. British Columbia, which is an area that I'm very familiar with. Um, but luckily, uh, Tracy, the author, um, actually went on a little trip to, um, I believe she went with maybe Danielle or, or Carol um, to Mary's hometown, uh, the place where she went to school. Um, so they, they had, they gave me this whole folder full of like uh, hundreds of photos of um, at Mary's hometown. Um, the, the school grounds. Um, and then they also went and they, they gave me another folder full of pictures from Mary's notebooks. And she kept really meticulous notes as she was going through school and then starting to work as an engineer. Um, so I used those notes to, there are some like mathematical formulas that are incorporated into the imagery. Um, and I also like read through those notes to find out what were the specific planes that she, she worked on, what, what kinds of contributions can I find in here that could be visual, uh, visually portrayed. Um, and then the, I, the most difficult thing as an illustrator for that book was that there was, she worked on a lot of secret stuff that there was no photographic evidence and very little written evidence. So I had to do a lot of my own research just trying to piece together like you know I knew that this skunk works um wh where she where she worked with Lockheed um to, that that they were actually working in a circus tent and I was trying to find out like does this really look like a circus tent and, and I eventually yeah like it was a like a stripey circus tent <laughs> um so yeah and then the question of what to highlight um, out of all of that, it just for me involves finding a balance between direct literal illustration of the text and um, choosing other imagery that will add to the story without distracting from it. Don, can you tackle this as both an author and an illustrator? Yeah, and um, you know, every book presents um, very unique challenges 
um, you know, in, in regards to research. Um, with It Just Happened, the story of outsider artist Bill Trailer, um, known as one of our country's most important outsider artists. Bill Trailer was born enslaved. He was emancipated when he was 10 years old. He lived out, um, you know, the remainder of his life on his ex-enslaver's property working as a sharecropper. By the time he was in his 80s, he decided to move away from the farm and he moved to the nearby city of Montgomery and he became homeless. And to recall his past, he started drawing pictures on the back of trash. Now, I did not have photos to work from. They didn't have iPhone cameras back then. Um, I did not have Bill Trailer writings that I could, could depend on um, because he could not even read or write. Um, still, I was able to use a very important primary source, um, which was the hundreds and hundreds of pieces of artwork that he created over the four years that he was a homeless street artist. His artwork told the story of his life while he was enslaved. His art served as a visual journal. Now, skipping ahead to William Steele and his freedom stories, the father of the Underground Railroad, William Steele was a black abolitionist who helped hundreds of enslaved people who were running away from slavery. He created copious detailed notes about each and every person as they passed through his office. He recorded their stories, whether they were a man or a woman, a boy or girl, their ages, who had enslaved them, and where were they trying to go? Thankfully, at least one of those journals, and it was called the Journal C of the Underground Railroad, um, which still preserved by hiding it in a cemetery vault, um, had been preserved by the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Um, and so, you know, when, I, when it came to illustrating this story, you know, one of the things about an illustrator is that you know, we don't have, and especially on the topic of slavery, we don't necessarily know what an individual person was wearing on a particular day. So I'm just gonna like flip through a, any, any page here. This is a page where William Still is at the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society office. I don't have a photograph of what that would have looked like, but I can study books of the time period. I can study artwork and you know, of the time period I can, um, oftentimes I'll look at movies that have been made of that time period. Um, during the time that I was researching this book, Harriet um, was showing at all of the, th uh, the, 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 the theaters. Uh, and I remember one of the interesting things about that is that William Still as portrayed in the movie was a sharp dressing man. And my wife left the movie theater and she says, William Steele, he sure dressed sharp. And I said, you know what, though, I don't think that they quite got that right because William Steele was not paid very well at the Anti-Slavery Society office. So he probably wasn't wearing all those fancy suits that we saw in the movies. Um, but, you know, I do my research. Um, it is also so important that, you know, um, that you find that theme, that diary, that autobiography, letters, poems, artwork. Um, you know, again, and the challenge for the illustrator is that we don't necessarily know what a person, you, you know, was wearing or what things looked like or what an office looked like, but we can do our research and we can make that educated guess. Thank you. Annette, can you expand a little bit on what you said previously about how you find your sources? And I think the 
um, the particular situation with all the way to the top is really interesting because you worked with the primary source, which is not always possible. Can you talk a little yeah. bit? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. Uh, yeah, so my my book, All the Way to the Top, is very based on interviews. Um, in a slightly different way than Paula was talking about because Paula was interviewing a range of people to try to piece together the details of what happened. My book is written from the point of view of um, Jennifer's experience. And what happened is as I was um, digging into the sources, to, I knew that I wanted to write about the Americans with Disabilities Act because I've seen it transform our country in ways that I didn't think kids would really understand had happened. And so I started digging into the sources and I discovered accounts of the Capitol crawl where disability rights activists came together and those who were mobility impaired climbed up the steps of the Capitol to demonstrate just how inaccessible government buildings were. Um, and I discovered that one of those activists was an eight-year-old girl, and her story really galvanized, the, the press was fascinated by her, and um, she was on the front page of newspapers, she was on, on TV, and all of the publicity about that event was part of what pressured and spurred Congress to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I am not a person currently with disabilities, um, and so I faced that issue that I thought this was a story that really should be told, but not my story. And so I contacted Jennifer and we discussed, like, how could this story come to children? And we eventually decided that we would uh, partner together and that through interviews that I would tell the story from her point of view. Um, one other source that I've used both in All the Way to the Top in my others bo other books um, is photographs. And it was interesting to hear Natasha and Dawn talk about how they used images in their art. But photographs are also really valuable for people when you're writing about events and people that um, you know weren't the front page story because you can look at the photographs and start to discover things about the other people that were involved in the event and about the context and situation. And I found that really valuable. I love finding stashes of photographs related to my topic. That's, that's super interesting. And Lee, I know you've got some photos in No Way They Were Gay, as well as lots of other primary sources. Can you talk a little bit about your research process? Absolutely. Yeah. I, and it's interesting because when we talk about history being hidden, um, to, to riff off of what Annette was saying, um, a lot of times photos are mislabeled. So there was an amazing photo of um, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, who's one of the people featured in my book, uh, because of her love affair with Lorena Hickok. There is a, a photo um, on AP of Eleanor and Lorena, um, but they mislabeled it and they say Le Eleanor dining with her secretary. And Lorena was never Eleanor's secretary. Um, so it, it's fascinating to see those sort of, to find those moments and um, to sort of recognize that we really do need to dig deeper. So like finding the stories, one of the funny things about controversy is that it gets attention. So um, Joseph Lelyveld is this Pulitzer Prize winning biographer and he um, wrote a book on Gandhi that got banned in India and there was a New York Times article on it. So I read the article and I was like, wait, what is this book? And it turns out that it was banned because it mentioned that the love of, her, of um, Mahatma Gandhi's life was actually not his wife, Kasturba, who he married at age 13. So child weddings aside, um, you know, the love of his life, the soulmate of his life was actually this German Jewish 
architect, this guy, Herman Kallenbach. And so I was so intrigued. So I got the book and it's this incredibly massive, you know, 400 page book for adults. Um, and I, there was a, a two pages where he talked about indeed the soulmate of, of his life was, was Herman. And then I was like, okay. So then I went to the back and I looked at the, the sources and I was like, okay, I need to find the letters. And it turns out that all of Gandhi's letters are in the public domain and available online to download. And this is my printout. And in fact, it's amazing because when you set aside the hundreds of years of historians that have sort of denied it and you go right to it and you read, you know, this is an April 17, 1914 letter that um, Gandhi wrote Kallenbach. And it says, if I can lie on a stone bed and you cannot, you shall certainly have a mattress underneath. And though you may lift a 10 stone weight, I shall certainly not attempt to do any such thing myself and still not feel ashamed to be your companion. I shall put up with you and love you just the same notwithstanding what you may call your limitations, even as you have to do likewise to me. We can therefore but go forward as far as our legs can carry us and no farther and still be together one soul and two bodies. So those, those are the moments I wanted to include in the book. And I, I wanted to make my book as much as possible. Here are the primary sources. Let's look at them. Set aside everything that you've been hearing. I'll share my interpretation. And I don't, I think also about like, we don't have to convince people that I feel like I don't have to convince everyone that I'm right about history and they're wrong about history. I just want to shine a light on what I discovered because it's so exciting. And for me, those moments of surprise, um, you know, like, no way they were gay and no way they were gay. Like, I just, I kept saying it. And finally, I was like, you know, that's like probably a really good title for the book. <laughs> Well, that leads really well into the next question. You know, what what do you all hope that readers, the both the adults maybe who are reading um, books, everyone that's represented here does write for children, but many of them um, can skew a little bit older, even in into the adults. What what do you hope that readers take away from your stories? Um, Don, can you start us off for that one? I want my readers to know the truth. Um, and you're exactly right about, you know, to the victors belong the spoils, this idea of African-American and Native American and people of color, you know, their stories being hijacked or hidden or buried or lied about. This is not something new. Retelling history, I imagine, has happened all throughout history. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Carter Reads the Newspaper, which is the story of Carter G. Woodson, known as the father of Black History Month. He knew that when he founded the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, he conducted groundbreaking research and worked tirelessly to fight against the idea that African-Americans had no history. He believed in raising the high standard of the truth. He believed in teaching the whole truth would help in the direction of a real democracy. He too believed in supporting diverse books way before all of this talk about diverse books. He said of books by African-Americans, ask repeatedly for such books and show that there is a demand for them. So I hope that what readers will take away is the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, and I even have a problem with authors oftentimes who like to take history and fictionalize it. And I know that's a whole genre, but I have a, a huge problem with that miniseries that's on TV now about the Underground Railroad. Um, 
I understand the authors being creative, but it worries me that a whole generation of people are going to watch that Underground Railroad miniseries and think that the Underground Railroad is a real train that happened during the Civil War. Um, so again, I'm, I'm just, I'm all about the truth. Here, here. <laughs> Annette, what do you hope readers take away from your stories? Yeah, so I'm interested, but I totally agree with Dawn and with you that often it's the victors who write history, but I have kind of a sub a specialty of writing about laws that have passed. And so in a way I'm writing about the victors, but there are people who were involved in that who have totally been forgotten. So often whatever was the face of a social movement, um, people assume that that's what the history is. And I think that we lose a ton of nuance and a ton of appreciation for how diversity strengthens our country. So I'll just give you the couple examples. So my first book, which actually won the Carter G. Woodson Award, um, so I love Don's book, uh, was Mountain Chef. And it's about an Asian American uh, trail chef who helped lobby for the National Park Service Act. And things that had been written about it before were about the white male who, uh, who had the idea, but he did not do that by himself. There were many, many people, uh, many who are still unknown and probably will never be known, who helped get us national parks. Um, and he was just one of them. And similarly, all the way to the top, it's about a law that did pass. So it's about, um, you know, victorious history, but there are it wasn't just the senator who introduced the bill who, who brought these changes that make our communities more accessible and inclusive. And so what I hope people, what I hope children will realize is that they are, they have the ability to nudge the world in new directions. That it's not just famous people, rich people, white people, men, that, um, that there are many people who come together to work on social issues and that their, what, that their contributions are meaningful and valuable. Lee, you touched on this a little bit. Um, what are you hoping that readers take away? Yeah, absolutely. I just, I wanted to say after Annette, yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not just the famous people, but sometimes it's also the famous people whose stories have been his, hidden. Um, and so for me, I, what I'm really hoping is that we have been, we have been sold a, a bill of goods and it is not a good bill. Uh, you know, history has been sanitized for the protection of the people in power. We, we are presented in, in schools, students are presented with this false facade of history that says that basically history is the story of rich, white, straight, cisgendered, able-bodied men from Europe. Um, and that is just patently untrue. Um, it, is, it is ridiculous to think that the only important things in history happened were happened because of the, that small group of people who were the people in power. So when you start to look into these stories and you start to discover that there were men who loved men and women who loved women and people who loved without regard to gender and people who lived outside gender boundaries like Abraham Lincoln and the letters to Joshua Fry Speed, like Eleanor Roosevelt uh, loving Lorena Hickok, like the Pharaoh Hatshepsut um, who changed their gender over the course of 22 years in terms of how they presented um, from, from that of a, a presenting as a woman, to presenting as sort of an in-between gender, to presenting completely as a man um, at, while ruling Egypt. 
when you start to look at the, that, those cracks in the facade, when we, when we tear down the facade, when the, when the facade crumbles, it not only lets the light of history shine on, on the queer history, but it lets us have access to recognize that that facade has kept us from seeing the stories of women and the stories of disabled people and the stories of Asian people and black people and indigenous people and all people of color and everybody, right? Like when we take down that false facade, it empowers us all. And I have a great quote from Bayard Rustin who became my total hero. He was openly gay, black man in the civil rights movement. He's the gentleman that taught Martin Luther King Jr. about the principles of nonviolent protest. He's chapter four in my book. And he said, um, be, I, he was asked by uh, what advice would he have for another gay black activist? And he said, the most important thing I have to say is that they should try to build coalitions of people for the elimination of all injustice. Because if we wanna do away with the injustice to gays, it will not be done because we get rid of the injustice to gays. It will be done because we are forwarding the effort for the elimination of injustice to all. And we will win the rights for gays or blacks or Hispanics or women within the context of whether we are fighting for all. I love that. Yeah, we all have to, be, we all, we're all in this together, right? Right. Paula, what are, uh, what are you hoping that readers take away from your books? Okay, um, before I get into that question, I have been noticing some things in the chat and wanted to bring up something that Don brought up earlier. Um, there is an Apple TV series called For All Mankind. You know, I have a, one, a friend of mine is an actress in it. Great show, it's about, we lost the space race. It's alternative history. You know, the Underground Railroad, I'm a huge Colson Whitehead fan. Uh, you know, it's it, these alternative histories and historical fiction. And I'm seeing in the comments a lot of, but you know, sometimes that can lead students to being curious and finding out what's the real story. And yes, I completely understand that, but I just want to bring up a comparison. Um, we know we won the space race because we have been taught that. That has been crammed down our throats every day from K through 12. We know about the landing of, on the moon, right? So when, when you're a teenager and you see For All Mankind, you know it's historical fiction. You know it's an alternate universe because our histories are hidden and nobody knows about us. We're not on a level playing field yet. So for, and I'm all for historical fiction of marginalized, what, you know, we, we have every right to do our version of that as well, but we need to also focus and level the playing field. So kids know both, they know the truth before they actually see the, the fictional retelling of it. That, that is the distinction, you know, that's why we're having this panel. And uh, to talk a little bit more about your question, um, I also saw in the chat that people sometimes say, well, picture books, when you write children's books, those aren't taken as seriously. And they should, because one of the reasons why I wrote the Sammy Lee book and the anime Wong book and my uh, book on Muhammad Yunus, who won the 2006 uh, Nobel Peace Prize, is because I write about emotionally what happened to them when they were marginalized, when they were treated badly, and how that affected them. How did they, their resilience, their strength, the fact that Sammy Lee couldn't use the town pool in 1932 in Pasadena, Pasadena, California, because he wasn't white. I just thought on a hot, it gets, it's hot, right? It's gonna be 90 degrees in California today. It gets hot, especially in Pasadena. Being a 12 year old kid behind the bars, all the other kids are swimming and you can't. What is your, emo that, that emotion is truth. And that's why picture book biographies and nonfiction picture books are just as vital in terms of academic research 
on history and should be taught because that emotion is what inspires those kids to become the people that they are today, the, how they overcome you know, these obstacles to be the heroes that they are today. Um, and I do wanna talk a little bit very quickly about my Vincent Chin book. In my Vincent Chin book, uh, Vincent Chin, who was adopted, his great-great-grandfather was a Chinese laborer on the railroads in the 1800s. So throughout my book, I also drop in Easter eggs about Asian American Pacific Islander history uh, that relates to Vincent Chin because that way teachers and students can go, oh, I wanna now learn more about the railroads. And to give you an example, um, in the 1800s, the Chinese laborers were told to carry the dynamite because dynamite was very volatile back then. It would explode. If, if you just a tiny stumble, you could blow up into a million bits. And the reason why they had the Chinese laborers carry the dynamite was they were expendable. They were cheap labor. The white laborers were more valuable. So in 1896, when the Continental Railroad from the East Coast and the West Coast met in the middle, that famous photo where everyone's standing there with the golden spike to put it in. If you look at that photo, look it up. Not a single Chinese laborers in there. They estimate tens to thousands uh, of Chinese laborers died making this railroad. And Vincent Chin's great-great-grandfather was one of them. I mean, he didn't die. He ended up going back to China, but he was one of the people that risked his lives. So Corky Lee, who I mentioned earlier, Corky Lee uh, was a famous Chinese-American photographer who is known as the unofficial Asian-American photo laureate because he has been documenting contemporary Asian-American history events for the past 50 years. And he recreated that photo about four or five years ago. There's a documentary about it. And he got all the grandchildren and the sons and the daughters and the relatives of all those Chinese laborers to recreate the photo. So we had to reclaim our own history, our own Asian American history. This was like five, six years ago. That's ridiculous. Kids should know about this stuff. And uh, to just, and I mentioned before, um, Corky died of COVID-19 in January and, and he shouldn't have. And that show, and uh, with, I'm getting emotional. Just, just the fact that we're having to correct and fix this now. It's 2021. I'm a Gen Xer. I thought by now I wouldn't have to write these books. It, it's a It's, it's, it's. It angers me. It really angers me. And um, you know, and so I, I just wanted to show that. And also, the last thing I'll say about uh, Vincent Shin is that there's been a lot of awareness of Asian American Pacific Islanders, especially because of the coronavirus. I myself and my family have been victims. I've been coughed at, I've been blamed for this virus. Um, I um, have experienced racism my whole life. Um, and uh, when Atlanta happened, and I don't wanna start crying, but when those eight innocent, beautiful people were killed, six of whom were Asian American women, uh, four Korean American, and we were told just like Vincent Chin, oh, this isn't a racist hate crime. It's a, a crime of misogyny and sexism. That angered me so much. Right now, the prosecutor is pursuing racist hate crimes, which is good. But on the day that it happened, I could not breathe because I have never experienced sexism and uh, misogyny as an Asian American woman. It's always rooted in racism. And the fact that 2021, we still don't know that. And that mirrored what happened in the Vincent Chin case because the Vincent Chin case happened in the 1980s when there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiment because of Nissan and Datsun and Honda and the Japanese import cars kind of decimating the American auto industry. And instead of the American auto industry saying, hey, we just had two oil crises. We had a second oil crisis. You know, there's a recession. Maybe we shouldn't be making big giant gas guzzlers. Maybe we should do what the Japanese and the Europeans are doing with their import 
making smaller, more fuel efficient cars, instead of being accountable, they blamed Japan. And then that led to anti-Asian bashing. Uh, there was a, a politician in my book who claimed, who called Honda the little yellow people. He later apologized for it. He never should have said it in the first place. And that is so hauntingly similar to what's happening today with us and coronavirus and the, and the pandemic and Atlanta and, and all of this. So to me, this is a history. This is still happening. And everyone's like, oh, Asian Americans, you're finally fighting back. My book shows we've been fighting back for centuries. One of the first strikes, one of the biggest labor strikes was the railroad workers in the 1800s and the miners. The other thing that happened was there are pictures of Asian American activists fighting with marching arm in arm with Black Panthers in the 1960s, you know, in the 1980s, nationwide protests for Vincent Chin. We've been here this whole time for centuries. We've been fighting, we've been speaking, but because our voices have been erased, no one has been listening. And that's why I'm so grateful that we're having this hidden history panel because we're not hiding anymore. And I really do think that we've hit another seminal point in all of our histories where there's no turning back. So. Thank you. I think that's such excellent context for you know the the dangers of this uh, fictionalized history, and really, really speaks to the need to introduce these topics for children, for all the way you know picture books and up. Um, so, Natasha, can you talk a little bit about what you're hoping readers take away, um, especially from the visual elements that you bring into Tracy's book, Classified? Um, yeah, I, uh, I. I think that we do kids an enormous disservice when we assume that we have to simplify history and present it as, um, you know, just one one perspective, one objective truth. Um, I want books like like uh, classified to offer some respect to children. I I think that they have an enormous capacity for. Um, critical thought and compassion and uh, understanding of all this, you know, huge variety of, of stories that exist in the world. Um, so I, I think that, that we owe that to kids. Um, uh, yeah, I hope that's what we offer. Yeah, I think going back to what you said earlier that, you know, you include really complicated mathematical equations in the illustrations just, again, respecting children's uh, capability of understanding how complex what it was that she was doing mm -hmm. by showing it, not just saying it. Um, sort of uh, dovetailing off of that, how would you encourage librarians, teachers, parents to avoid erasure, unintentional or otherwise, in their classrooms, libraries, and curriculums? How do you, how do you, help, you know, hope that they will find these books? And Natasha, we'll start with you this time. Um, yeah, I was thinking a lot about this question um, over the past uh, few weeks. Um, there's been this, I don't know what the American awareness of this story is, but there's been this story unfolding in Canada um, where these um, basically mass graves are, are being uncovered um, in various residential schools, um, properties, residential schools, which by the way, <laughs> were in operation up, up until 1996. Um, and uh, I was thinking about uh, but these the, these missing children were were general knowledge to Indigenous peoples in Canada, but they it's come as a shock to a lot of non-Indigenous populations in Canada. Um, I was thinking a lot about about how I learned about residential schools 
as a kid and it wasn't through through my school um it wasn't through happening upon these books in in the library or or through my teachers um so what i would love would be for educators and and librarians and parents to keep up with um the perspectives that are being put out there i think it's uh, it's really easy to follow a bunch of uh, small indie publishers and creators on Twitter and uh, you can learn a lot about what's what's being what stories are being told that you might not otherwise know about and for those to just be prominently displayed somewhere that would be such a huge difference from from what I grew up with um, uh, yeah that's great there's some commentary in the chat for uh, from Vitalina. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, um, making as, as an education librarian, making sure that the collection is more diverse so that pre-service teachers just get used to seeing this kind of diverse library mm -hmm. as a straight expectation for going forward. And then they will in turn help expose the next generation of readers to that. Um, Don, how about you? Any recommendations for teachers or librarians or parents to find untold stories? You know what? This is uh, I'm, I'm I'm totally at a loss on this on this particular one. I don't feel like I have an answer for this because this is not my specialty. Um, my specialty is writing and illustrating illustrating the books. Um, uh, the subject is like way above my pay grade. Uh, but one idea that I do have is that teachers, librarians refuse to lie to young people about U.S. history uh, and current events. Even though, although our politicians and our legislators are trying to get you to do that, don't lie to children. Um, there was an interesting article in School Library Journal this week that speaks to the topic, and I have it over here. It's called, As More States Consider Legis Legislation to Restrict Teaching About Racism, Educators are fighting back by Christina Joseph. And I encourage you to take a look at that article. It has some, some answers that, are, that I certainly couldn't come up with myself. I think uh, this is a good chance probably to plug all of our authors here, follow them on social media, follow their newsletters, check out their websites. Um, they would certainly be able to tell you about their own books that are coming out. And we've established that they're all five working um, to fix this, uh, this area where there um, has not been as much stories being told. Uh, Lee, any suggestions from you? And we're also fans of each other's work. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have two, two things. The first is to really be thoughtful about language. So um, being gay, I really feel like the word homosexual is not helpful to the queer community because it makes everyone focus on sex uh, and, and that that's what makes pe gay, queer people different. Um, and I think if instead we focused on love, if the word was homo lovable, uh, and if we were talking about homolovable history, I think we would be having very different conversations, homolovable rights. Um, and so I think that because we buy into this thing of homosexuality, anybody thinks that, you know, a book for kids that includes queer characters or themes is suddenly talking to kids about sex. And that's not really what it is. It's, you know, talking about love and talking about identity. Those are things you can talk to kids, you know, from from birth, right? Like there should be board books and there are uh, some, and that's what I've been blogging about for the last 13 years that I'm here, I'm queer, what the hell do I read? So I think that if we can shift that focus, then we can recognize that talking about love, talking about identity um, is completely appropriate for kids and for the youngest kids. And, you know, you look at uh, countries like Russia that have made it illegal to talk about 
um, gay people in a positive light. Um, in, in fact, Tennessee has tried a few times to pass a very similar law. Um, and it's, it, there are echoes of the same patterns of ways that our culture tries to put down um, people of color, ways that they try to keep down women, ways they try to keep down uh, queer people. There, there are similar tactics being used and that's why we all need to stand up together. The other thing I wanted to share is that I think you should consider that um, there are books that are lighthouses and there are books that sort of carry lanterns within them. So my book, which is festooned with a gay pride rainbow flag and has the word gay on the cover is a lighthouse. And just having this on a shelf in the library on display, um, that is a message to all those kids that, oh, this is a safe space or, oh, the librarian is a safe person. Um, and that can make a huge difference. But there are also books like, I'm thinking of Kathleen Krull, um, who recently passed away, um, and her Lives of the Artists series, Lives of series, and she has one Lives of the Artist. And in it, she talks about Michelangelo being a man that loved another man. Um, and that's great that it got this one sentence message mention in that book, but it's like there's a lantern inside that book, right? And there are some librarians from really conservative areas and they've asked me, you know, like, how do I, how do I incorporate this um, in my library when I'm, I, I'm feeling so under the microscope? So that's why it's really important for books like these to get, you know, um, trade book reviews, um, which mine has, uh, you know, but, but like also just, just sort of librarians sometimes need, you know, cover, right? They, so, so look to the books that include both fiction and nonfiction, books that include mar marginalized characters, books that include um, history, and then also look for the lighthouses because you need to have some lighthouses there for, for the kids, not just about queer history, but about all of our histories. That is such a great framework to, to think about books in that way. Um, Annette, do you have any uh, great ways for teachers and librarians to find these books? Well, this is not the ultimate solution, but I think checklists are really, really powerful and can help you find your own blind spots. So checklists about what books to uh, buy for your collection, what books to display, and make sure that you are being uh, being broadly diverse, both we need diverse book and books and Lee and Lowe have really helpful checklists. That's a great idea. And I, I think all of the book suggestions that we're gathering from the panelists and the attendees will serve as a wonderful checklist for this particular area. Uh, Paula, how about you? Any, any great sources you can point us to? Uh, everyone's already brought up stuff that I wanted to bring up. So thank you. And just beautiful uh, language here with the lighthouse and the lantern. I have one word and a couple more. My one word is vote. Let's take a step back and look at, let's look at the bigger picture here. Dawn talked earlier about that important article we should be reading. Critical race theory is becoming a big flashpoint uh, controversial debate happening in our country. What's disturbing to me, what is incredibly disturbing to me is our education is becoming politicized. The truth is being politicized, which means it's no longer the truth and we have young lives in our hands. So find out who your local representatives are, not just where I'm President Biden, you know, like whoever the president is, yes, vote there, but vote your city council, your town council. I, I, I don't care if you come from a town of 13 people, vote for that one mayor, you know, the kid mayor running for your small town, vote, uh, find out where your politicians stand on education. 
you know, it, it, this, this, we're at a crucial point. It's, it's no joking around. We are at a crucial point with education. And um, so I just think that all of these suggestions are great, but you have to vote. And the other thing I wanted to say was, if, if you vote, also find out which politicians, which state senators, which congresspeople, uh, who, whoever your local politicians are, find out what their stance is on paying teachers and librarians more. I can't tell you how many times I go to the American, the ALA or, or the IR, the MR, the readiness of the teaching. I go to all these events and I've seen librarians and teachers, they go by the Lee and Lowe booth or the Norton booth or the Harper and they go, oh my God, these books are so great. Can't buy anything right now because you know, I have to buy, it's, it's just my money. You know, I, I, I make X amount of money a year. I can only afford 50 bucks worth, but we should be paying teachers and librarians more so they can be more empowered and they can set up how they want to tell the truth. If they aren't even given the resources, how can you, know, and I, I want to say I'm a half glass full person. I will always be a half glass full person. Um, lately it's been getting a little iffy for me. And I think it's not that I'm becoming a half glass, half empty, you know, I'm always half full, but lately I've been like, where's the water? How can I fill my glass if I don't even have access to water? So sorry, I'm getting all this. This panel is just empowering me. Everyone vote, pay teachers and librarians more. That's how we get the truth out there. I can hear the entire audience is cheering and screaming along with this. And I think that's a great point because they're local. You know, we hear so much about what's going on at the national level, which is all which is important. And it's important to be aware of that. But the the local and the state level governments is really what's making a difference in terms of policy, in terms of funding and in terms of, um, you know, access to these books within the school system. You know, that kind of education is really local um, and all the way up to the state government. So those are really great points. I see people in the chat just going crazy <laughs> over all of this. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to try and keep us roughly on time. So I'm going to skip to a couple of audience questions that I thought were really interesting. Um, one of them is, how do you keep from being overwhelmed by all of the information that you uncover and then narrowing it down to fit into a book for kids? Um, anyone want to take that to start? Annette? <laughs> I well, see you start out being overwhelmed. Yes, and, then, yeah. and then you have to okay. find... Uh, you have to find, I think of it as the golden thread that I'm always looking for that, you know, I know that there are multiple stories that could be told about all of these people, but what's the golden thread that, that I, I connect to, um, you know, I've written a couple of books about people not in my ethnic group, which um, sold a long time ago and which I wouldn't do anymore, but there are connections that I have, for example, um, Mountain Chef, I'm a Westerner. This is about Western lands. I have a book coming out that sold many years ago, uh, but coming out this fall about um, Pura Bel Pre and how she started bilingual story times. So my, my book, that golden thread in there is what bilingual story times are. They were really important to my family. But uh, yeah, so I think that um, finding the golden thread is really important and, it, and you start out being overwhelmed. Lee. I, I can add to that a, a little bit. Um, I kept telling myself, I'm not writing an encyclopedia. <laughs> um, what I was hoping to do is to have the reader mirror my own experience of being fascinated and excited and sort of like it's an introduction to not just the stories of men who love men and women who love women and people who loved without regard to gender and people who lived outside your gender boundaries, but it's an, it's an introduction to this whole world of history beyond the facade, right? Like, 
it's and and I viewing it that way kind of took the pressure off. And I actually had a, 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 an opportunity to have, I used to have 15 chapters and now it has 12, but that was because I didn't want that. I didn't want to remove the heart of the book, which was really the primary sources. And we were limited to a certain page count. So it ended up being 12 chapters because those could be packed with the stuff. I didn't want it to just be Shakespeare wrote 126 love sonnets to another guy. Here's one. There are like four of them in there and we really go into it and we analyze them. And so for me, that was really important. Um, the other thing for me in terms of overwhelm was recognizing that because it's a book written for young kids, um, well, really ages 11 and up, um, the challenge was is that some of them wouldn't have a base understanding, um, but some would, right? Like some people would know what LGBTQIA2 plus meant and some wouldn't. And I just was wrestling with this so much. And then I realized um, I, the book is a funny structure. It has two introductory chapters. One is the regular introduction, which sort of talks about how history of queer people have been you know, hidden and destroyed and coded. And then the other, introductory chapter is called good stuff to know before you dive in and it's a chapter that you can kind of skip if you if you know it all but it does have those things about like let's talk about the difference between gender and affective orientation and you know what are all those letters of the acronym mean um, and it's been interesting because in the reviews I, I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback for that sort of level setting that like here's a really you know loving way to introduce people to the basics and then you can go on from there. So for me, that was sort of the two-part thing. Like I didn't have to say everything and let me help get everyone up to a certain level of understanding. Great point. Does anybody else want to talk about <laughs> how, do you, how do you filter all of the information that you get? We have time maybe well, for Annette used, comments on that. Annette used the word golden thread and I, 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 um, I used the word big idea. Um, so as I research, I find all of this interesting things about the person and I'm and my first inclination is to put all that stuff into the story and oftentimes in those first few drafts I do put all that stuff into the story and then I stand up and I I, I, I read my manuscript out loud as though I'm reading to a group of six-year-olds and I realize that I'm not going to hold their attention with all this stuff in the story so once I figure out what the main message what is the big idea behind this story if a piece of research that I found fits into that big idea, it goes into the story. And if it doesn't, it's just going to drag my story down. Maybe it goes into the back matter. Maybe it goes into a teaching guide that I make available as a free download on my website. Or maybe it just goes, it just is kicked, completely kicked out of the story because the main thing is that I want to introduce my younger readers to a topic and then they can do their own research and discover more information about that person. Leave everybody wanting a little bit more. <laughs> uh, Natasha or Paula, anything to add to that? Um, um, <laughs> oh, go ahead. Oh, um, okay, well, I, I'll just say, uh, agree with all of this. I think it's also, for me, it's always about emotion because I use, uh, I write novels and I'm also a TV writer. That's my, that's my day job. Uh, so I do a lot of screenplays for Hollywood and it's always about emotion at the end of the day, you know, it, it's never about Superman. It's about Clark Kent, you know, just small, small, you know, small town, young man trying to make it big in the city. It's Superman that it, we care more about Clark Kent than, and his emotional journey and the secret he carries than we do Superman actually. So I always look at that with narrative nonfiction, at least of, who are my main characters, even though this is the truth, 
how they start out one way, there's an obstacle, how they overcome that obstacle, or even if they don't, that journey, how are they changed forever? And what they did, how did that change history forever? By what they tried to do. We lost the Vincent Chin case. They ultimately, the guilty verdict was reversed. We lost it. But yet Vincent Chin, his name and legacy live on. You know, so in other words, you know, it, it's about emotion for me. Every single, and even for explanatory type books too, which are very, very important too, because not all kids can read or prefer learning through narrative. Some, sometimes they want a non-narrative book and that's very important. Still within those books, there's a beginning, middle and end of emotion. You know, there's, you know, the cicada and how after 17 years it pops out, you know, what's the, you know, oh, I've been sleeping for 17 years, Woo, I'm awake. So, I mean, it's, it's, I think that, I think especially for children and for teenagers, they're just one giant vat of emotion. That's, you know, that's how you reach them. So that's always, that's kind of the colander where I have all the stuff and everything that falls to the holes, what remains is always the heart. That's a great way to put it, Natasha. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to add, but I guess, um, I'm autistic. So I spend a lot of time, um, a lot of my life is spent feeling overwhelmed and trying to, uh, filter through all of the overwhelm into the stuff that makes sense. Um, so over time that has just become this intuitive, I, I think like Paula, very emotional practice that I take into my work. Fabulous. Thanks. I'm going to pull up, um, for our panelists or for our attendees. Here is how you can connect with all of our panelists. I really encourage you follow them on social media, find their websites. Many of them have newsletters to sign up for. Um, they are great and well-connected within the KidLit community. Um, I just wanna say thank you so much to all of our panelists. This has been such a wonderful discussion. We so appreciate all of the great suggestions that have come in. Um, I also encourage everyone to visit um, our landing page, which is learnerbooks.com slash hidden history. Um, we also have links to everybody um, on there and we will post in a day or two the book list of all the recommendations that have come in um, and you can sign up for a newsletter to get invited to future webinars. We wanna keep hosting more conversations like this because they are so important and we will um, send out the book list and uh, a link to the recording in a couple of days. Um, so you can share it with anyone who wasn't able to attend live. Um, so I'll just give everybody, put us back on video. We'll have a chance to say thank you so much for participating. Thank you to all of you for sharing your stories. This has just been really, really wonderful. And I so appreciate all the work that you're putting out in the world. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, have a wonderful thank rest you. of your day. Thank, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. And get, get the other panelists' books like get I do. Get all the books. They'll <laughs> be in the book list. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to The Learner Podcast. Tune in again next time for more author interviews and the stories behind the books.